Welcome to the OT lifestyle movement. This is for the occupational therapy visionaries and the ones who see things differently. We're moving our profession forward through living and leading a truly holistic lifestyle. Hey, hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the OT lifestyle movement. I'm Rhiannon Crisp, occupational therapist, personal trainer, and founder of otlifestylemovement.com. Today, we are talking all about sensory processing with the one and only Professor Winnie Dunn. What an absolute honor and privilege it is to be speaking with a legendary OT like Winnie. Professor Winnie Dunn is a true visionary in the world of OT, whose career-long commitment to learning has propelled our profession forward. Winnie is internationally known expert for her studies on sensory processing in everyday life. She has published more than 100 research articles, book chapters, and books, and has spoken around the globe, shedding light on sensory processing. She is the author of The Sensory Profile Measure and the book Living Sensationally, Understanding Your Senses Living Sensationally. She's an absolute inspiration of mine, and welcome, Winnie. Hi, thank you for having me. It is, honestly, I'm so excited to have you with us. Before we dive into sensory processing and all the questions that I have lined up for you, I'd love it if we could hit the rewind button and find out a bit about your OT journey and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. You know, um, it was interesting this mor- this very morning, last week I found out that uh, there's a, a program here in town called Camp Encourage, which um, is a summer camp for kids who have autism. And um, they're, uh, I have a history with them. They're, they're not very old, but they're very enthusiastic and it's very exciting. So um, I was doing a little video for them and they were asking a similar question. And it, I remembered that when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp uh, called Camp Daniel Boone, and it was for um, children with like cerebral palsy and um, uh, hydrocephalus and hemophilia. And um, I, I think, you know, when I think back, that was a pretty pivotal experience for me. You know, I was in a natural environment. We were um, figuring out whatever adaptations we had to do so these children had an authentic camping experience. The fires, the, um, the campfire singing and uh, throwing the sticks in, you know, um, swimming, hiking, all the things that anybody would do at a camp. And um, so this Camp Encourage made me remember that that was, that was like a beginning experience where I was around um, other people trying to problem solve and um, like giving like pure joy to these children. You know, they would go home all beat up and their parents would come get them after a week and they would just be so happy and they would look, you know, like a wreck because they had done all these great things. Um, and so, you know, that is probably where all of this started. You know, this idea that that um, we can be helpful to others. Um, who have different ways of living. And there was no restraint there. You know, there was no rules about what the funders would pay for or what the, you know, any of, none of that was part of it. It was just this pure joy of being in a, a, a context of nature that everybody loves. And so 
that is to me you know that is what i realized this very day was that was the seed that started to grow and so when i started looking around i was in a dorm in the in college with these two women um they were a little bit older but they were living in the dorm and they had started out in um fashion design and changed their minds and decided to be physical therapists and uh, they were just a hoot and that very those very two years that i was living with them um the ot program at that university was starting and they they kept coming back from class and saying you've got to you've got to go to the ot program you've got to go to the ot program because i had this big humpback trunk with all these like hammers and sewing supplies and crafts and um i was always fixing things or making things and so it, it's like um i had all these like early experiences that today i can look back and go oh yeah that was putting it all together but I didn't, you know, I think none of us really realize it going forward that that's contributing and that's contributing. Um, so those were my really early, early experiences. And then when I was on one of my field works, I um, was placed at a school for children with uh, different disabilities because back then children were segregated um, in their schooling. And I was with this bunch of men and women, these teachers and therapists that were, um, radical like and this is a long time ago so they were like sneaking signs to children because we weren't supposed to teach sign language because you know they thought children wouldn't talk if you did that you know but that was another incident where i learned how to question the status quo you know like is that really the right thing to be doing you know this child's getting frustrated what's a way we could work our way through that you know they just they didn't take no for an answer they just were going to figure out a way to make it work for that kid so in my early years i had all these experiences with people that were like on no uncertain terms doing whatever it takes so imagine then when i get into ot school and i have you know i learn all the principles and all the sort of rules and you know the philosophy and the Sort of core values of OT, but I have this background from all these other people telling me that we can um, figure out new ways to do things. And and when I look back on my career, I would say, you know, I was, I, um, my first job was in a public school five years before the federal government in the United States had a rule that OTs had to be in public schools. Um, because uh, our the state I live in had started it early. Uh, I was, I did a, my PhD program, I was one of the experimental students. Uh, they were trying to get a new program started, so I was one of the experimental students that did that with them. You know, I have this whole life of um, being in places where I, I'm proud to say I was willing to try something new. And, um, that spirit of adventure and that that ability to see the joy of a person being able to live the life they want to live separate from being an ot but having that core value has really i think been a a thread that you can follow through my whole my whole career mm. so and this is what i absolutely love about you winnie is that you do question the status quo and you aren't afraid to bring up new ideas 
And I think this is so important to move our profession forward is to come up with new ideas and question things and be curious. Mm -hmm. Curious is a really important word. Uh, when I, when I got my, a couple years, oh, probably about four years ago now, when I got my um, uh, positive psychology um, certification to be a positive psychology coach, um, I have, I actually still have a little sticker on my computer here that says stay curious because one of the things um, that I learned in there is that this idea that we already know the answer that a person's going to have is just erroneous. And um, this idea that if you can stay curious with the families you're serving or with the teachers you're serving or with the, the adults you're serving, you, you find out so many more things about them. You know, so I'm really glad that you said the word before me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. You know, we all have these set of lenses through which we view the world. And even us as therapists, we have this based on our experiences and how we grew up and what we watch on television and the information that we get day to day. But we've got to understand that our clients too have their own set of lenses through which they view the world. And we need to start to understand their belief systems and their values and what's meaningful to them. Mm. And that is it isn't that what makes being an OT so interesting? You know, like we don't have, the only protocol we have is to um, visit this other person's life and find out about it. You know, like how much more intimate can you get than that your, your first job is to find out what their life is like. Like, I don't no know. one never get tired of being an OT. <laughs> I know. It's, it's an absolutely incredible profession. And that's it. And I, I still think as a profession too, we have a long way to go. There's so many things left unexplored. And I could speak to you about this forever, but I suppose we should get into the sensory processing side of things. Um, but when I started thinking of all the things that I'd like to talk to you about, there were so many different things. There was, you know, a strengths-based approach. There was coaching and there was sensory processing. So we will dive into the sensory processing today, but um, we might even have to get you back on for another <laughs> chat another day. Oh, that would be fine. So what was it about sensory processing that led you on this career-long journey to studying it? Can you share your fascination with us? Well, um, when I was a young OT, um, was when Dr. Ayers was, um, she started working on her ideas. She was writing about it. And uh, um, in the very early years of my career was when she created the Southern California Sensory Integration Test, which was her first big evaluation tool. And um, she and three of her friends were spending their weekends doing workshops, teaching people about this. And, you know, I think they thought it would just be this little thing and they would teach people, but it became enormous really fast. And they, these women were just overwhelmed with how much interest OTs had in this idea. There's something about the people that pick OT that make sensory processing really fascinating to us. And um, they asked, um, for people to um, join them to apply to be an, um, a, a person that would teach about the, the core ways of doing this test. And um, I, you know, this is the, when you're young, you do things that when you're older, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that, but I applied. And I think, you know, there weren't as many OTs back then. So, um, you know, they, they picked me and, um, 
So that was the sort of formal start of my journey. But um, the thing that, that I um, have come to understand is that this is such an essential piece of who each of us are. You know, um, sometimes uh, when people have a hard time with uh, the ideas, it's because we all experience sensation all the time. It's why we make an adjustment in our chairs. It's why we pick certain foods. It's why we, you know, reject a, a kind of clothing or accept another kind of clothing. But it's so much part of that everyday experience that we forget. We, in fact, most of us aren't even aware that that's what's driving a lot of those decisions. And um, that's part of what Dr. Ayers talked about at the beginning was um, the children having a different reaction to the things that other people um, weren't noticing or that other people were reacting a different way. So, so my fascination was really um, this idea that I could be part of helping grow um, people's knowledge about this. It was, I, was, I was curious as a young therapist, I was working in a public school and um, you know, children in public, well, in public school is like their everyday environment. You know, it's like, it's like life for children. And um, you know, if you were in X teacher's classroom or Y teacher's classroom, you had a very different experience because of how the teacher organized it. And so, so my, my awareness about the impact of these things that I now understand to be sensory experiences was really, um, it was really early because I was working with kindergartners and they're, they're loud and rowdy and they don't know the rules. And um, that, that sort of disarray affected the children very differently. So, mm -hmm. so how do you describe sensory processing today? Because I'm sure your understanding of it has developed over the years. How do you describe it? Um, for me, it's, it's the, um, it's the, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint, because I have a degree in neuroscience, it's, it's the information your brain needs to um, organize things, uh, to make decisions, to uh, decide what to do, to decide um, what changes a person needs to make. Um, without sensory input, your brain is um, starved. You know, in the early in the early '70s, the studies about um, the sensory deprivation tanks that people would get into. It wasn't even 10 minutes before the brain started creating sensation. When they took it all away, when they took gravity away and light away, and um, you know, they made the however the saline was, you couldn't feel the sensation on your skin. Um, the brain started creating it. So, so this idea. So from a neuroscience standpoint, it's the food, it's the fodder that your body and brain need to um, decide what to do. From a, from a, a person-oriented point of view, sensory processing is the thing that, um, that guides how we organize our day, um, what we make decisions to do, what, um, how we figure out how we're interested in something. Um, it helps us develop competency. Sensory processing is the material out of which we create our lives. And so that's why, to me, knowing what sensory processing is for each person is so critical. Um, it, it evolves into their temperament. You know, we've seen studies where there's a really strong relationship between certain temperaments and certain patterns of sensory processing. So even the way that we present ourselves to other people is based on how our senses 
um, are noticing and responding to things in the everyday environment. Hmm. And you describe four sensory patterns. Can you briefly describe what they are? Yeah. Um, I'm so proud that I figured it out because <laughs> I didn't understand it at first. You know, at first I thought it would just be auditory and visual and touch, you know. And so imagine my shock when the first studies I did um, clustered things from different sensory systems together. It kind of upset me, if you want to know the truth. Um, there was a bigger truth there that I couldn't understand. So from all these studies from thousands of people, what we figured out is that um, the brain certainly responds to our sensory um, categories of touch and motion and, and visual and auditory. But at a bigger, at a sort of meta level, the brain is responding to two really important things. One is the, um, the thresholds um, from a neuroscience standpoint, the neurological thresholds, like how fast or slow um, does your brain respond to sensation? Um, so if you have high thresholds, it means it takes a whole lot of input. And if you have low, it takes very little. And then uh, crisscross with that is the, um, a psychological feature, which is your self-regulation, which is whether you actively do things to control your sensation or you sort of let stuff happen and then react to it. So when you do that, you get these four patterns. And, and so seeking is the first pattern, and it is people with really high thresholds whose brains are interested in having more sensation and you know so the so the the brain does things to make you notice and get interested in all the sensations around you seekers um, have high thresholds so they're going after sensation um, people that um, touch all the fabrics when they're shopping in a, in a clothing store or they they're tasting all the food and they want you to taste it when you're having dinner together these are people that um, really take a lot of pleasure in sensation and they think because they do all the rest of us do too <laughs> If we don't they're they're just like generators of sensation they dance uh, kids at school hop instead of walk um, they do things to make more sensation for themselves throughout the day um, avoiders um, also have um, that really sort of active strategy of going after things but they have really low sensory thresholds, so they, their brains are triggered by tiny little amounts of sensory input, and um, their brain um, reacts as if it's potentially dangerous or harmful. So their, their uh, behavioral reactions are more about withdrawing, about um, staying away, about not engaging. Um, uh, a child or an adult with an avoiding pattern might also have a little temper tantrum, but it's to like get you to stop, you know, to get you to quit doing whatever it is, like making a noise or uh, doing something that is too much for their, excuse me, for their nervous system. So avoiders are, you know, they're, they're very self-contained and their active strategy is to stop it or get away from it. Um, the third pattern um, are sensors. Sensors also have low thresholds, but they, um, because of the self-regulation continuum, they're more likely to let things happen to them and then react. So they can get um, overwhelmed really fast because they're trying to engage, um, but they also can be really bossy. Um, you know, like, could you stop chewing that gum? Could you quit hitting your plate with your fork? Could you, you know, and they might be really picky at a restaurant, you know, sending food back because it's not the right temperature. 
because their brain is very discerning about every little detail. I always tell families that um, kids that are sensors are the emotional um, uh, barometers of their family because they're the first one that notices if your mood changes. You know, what's wrong, mommy? Um, they, they detect those little bitty changes. So they're very, they're very um, dear uh, to have around because they're, they're so um, in tune with other people around them. But that can be overwhelming. And then the fourth uh, category I call bystanders. It's uh, registration is the formal, formal name. But these are people that have really high thresholds like seekers, but they do not do things to give themselves more. So their appearance is very easygoing, but they can miss cues. You know, like um, a parent, I've had uh, people say to me, can you help me? My husband, you know, is a bystander. It's like, well, if you want him to notice what the children are doing, they're going to have to be in the same room together. And they're going to have to throw the ball across his lap for him to notice. Like bystanders just don't detect very quickly. Um, they're, um, they're oblivious sometimes, um, uh, which I, you know, I think is, is good. You know, they, we can learn a lesson from them. They don't get too riled up about stuff. Um, but they also can miss things that are important. So they, you know, bystanders have to have like external cues around them to remind them about things because they can easily forget. So they, they all have, just to be clear, they, they, they all have really good qualities and they are all have really challenging qualities. They're not, it's not a diagnosis to be fixed. It's just a characteristic to understand. Mm, I love that. And depending on the context too that we're in, these, can, yeah. these patterns change. Well, and you know, avoiders create contexts that don't challenge their sensory systems. You know, they might pull the shades down in their house or they might not have very many things on the wall because that is a more settling, calming, organizing kind of environment for them. Um, seekers might have 50 things on their walls, you know, because that extra input is really helpful to them. So um, we all have an intuition about it, but I think the cool thing about as an OT is that we can share this gift with families and with teachers and with husbands and wives and grandparents about what these behaviors mean so that they feel kind of in charge of it instead of like blown over by it. You know, if a family understands that a child is an avoider, mom or dad taking that kid out to the other room for a few minutes is just so he can regroup, not because he's difficult. Um, it, it sort of changes the language that we use. And it, um, my husband is a bystander. And so he, of course, throws that in my face sometimes. You know, you realize I'm a bystander and somebody famous wrote about that. <laughs> you know, like, give me a break. Um, but as a, as a seeker, um, he doesn't notice how irritating I might be um, because he doesn't notice all the things. So. So that balancing of, of understanding what the characteristic is and how it shows up in the everyday life um, is a really important part. If you understand your child's sensitive, you don't take offense if they have enough of you hugging them. You don't feel like a bad mother because that happened. You're like, I'm so glad that he knows when he has enough and I can be respectful of that. And it just changes the dynamics of the relationships when you understand those things. 
Mm, absolutely. And we can bring so much more empathy when we understand why people do the things they do. I want to read a, an excerpt from an article, Winnie, that you wrote back in 2001, and it was titled The Sensations of Everyday Life, Empirical, Theoretical and Pragmatic Considerations. The experience of being human is embedded in the sensory events of everyday life. We, when we observe how people live their lives, we discover that they characterise their experiences from a sensory point of view. Sensation is the common language by which we share the experience of being human. It provides a common ground for understanding. Can you unpack this a little bit more for us? I, um, as I told you earlier, you know, I'm so happy that I um, understood that long ago, this idea that it's part of the humanity that we have. I think that, um, I think that since, since sensation drives all of the things that our brain does, um, we take it for granted or we, we don't notice it. And um, when you, we, if someone is telling you a story about something that happened to them, they're using sensory words. They're telling you about whether it was so bright they couldn't see or whether, um, you know, they had this, this, these pants on that were too tight. You know, like they're, they're hearkening words that make you have a vicarious sensory experience with them. And that's how we sort of paint our world for each other. And um, I think if we understand that, that that's a fundamental part of being a human being, um, then we stop making sensory processing a, a dysfunction or a, a deficit. And we start making it a characteristic that um, even though like kids with autism or adults with schizophrenia might have a more intense version of the experiences we have, um, we're all on the same continuum. You know, it's not a pathology anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a way of knowing. It's a way of um, deriving meaning. And um, if we listen to each other from that standpoint, I think that, like you said earlier, the empathy and compassion for what it feels like to be inside that other person's skin or what it feels like to be the parent of a child that's having those experiences um, helps us to be more present with the, the sort of the considerable gifts we have as OTs to solve the problem with the family or with the teacher. You know, like what, what do you want it to look like and how, how can we get there from here? Um, if you listen with that idea that it's part of all of our humanity. Hmm. I want to read another excerpt from that same article because you touched on that just then and I want to dive a little bit deeper. You say sensory processing patterns are reflections of who we are. These patterns are not a pathology that needs fixing. Intervention addresses the interference between our desired life and our current performance. Sensory processing knowledge can narrow this gap and reduce interference thereby affording a satisfying life. And then you go on to say, therapeutic intervention is only appropriate when there is something the person wants or needs to do and their way of sensory processing interferes with that aspect of living a satisfying life. I love this. Can you break this apart a little bit more for us? That I still love it. Um, 
uh, for me, um, there have been studies, you know, we've, we've known about sensory processing and these patterns for an, a long enough time now that we have studies across time and studies with adults. For example, there's a study with um, adults who have autism. And I've read a lot of autobiographies uh, by, in, in America, we would say they are self-advocates um, that tell about their experience as people with autism and the things that their parents did, their therapists did, uh, they tell, all, tell us all that. So when we look at those kinds of um, pieces of evidence, what we see is that people have the same patterns of sensory processing when they grow up as they had when they were children. They certainly have a different repertoire of behaviors. They, um, they might have uh, decided that something was really important, like a, a teenager that says, uh, jeans are really scratchy, but everybody's wearing jeans, I'm gonna, wear those jeans, you know, they, they might have to like get home and relax quietly for a while after wearing them, but they may, you know, we still have the ability to make those decisions for ourselves. But the evidence is that people keep, you know, still have their basic sensory patterns their whole lives. So, so if that's true, um, and, and you and I have the, con the, the ability to figure out what a person's sensory patterns are from like interviewing and observing their life and doing assessments like the sensory profile, um, then what we have are, to me, are all the tools we need to provide really effective and satisfying interventions that lead to their satisfying life. So um, I always ask people about what it is you know, like, tell me about a time that, you know, when things go really smoothly, you know, what does it look like? And tell me, now tell me about this thing that you want to do and, and, you know, what makes it hard for you so that we can kind of, and then I keep linking it back to what their sensory patterns are. Did you notice that the place that was really easy for you is really quiet and this activity you want to do is in a really noisy place, you know, so you have, you're sensitive to sound. So I wonder what we could do about that. You know, so, so that we, I keep linking back to what their sensory patterns are, but we stay focused on the activity of interest or the setting of interest or the um, thing they want to learn or achieve or do. And, and by um, linking it back to sensory processing, I give them the tools not to judge themselves. I'm too sensitive or if I wasn't so picky, but to say, how can I make this setting, this activity acceptable? You know, like, can I put earphones in? Can I stand at the perimeter instead of in the middle? It, it gives us tools to either adapt the environment or change the, the um, components of the activity so the person can still do it. Like um, a good example is I was helping somebody um, with going to a concert. And, you know, all of us go to concerts, but we do it in a different way. You know, if you're a seeker, you go early, you talk about it the whole week before, you, you go out after, you're singing all the songs, you're in the mosh pit, like that's the seeker's experience. But an avoider or a sensor might buy tickets on the balcony on the first row so people can't bump into them. They might get there early to get to their seat. Um, they might either leave early or wait and leave later. They're going to rest before they go to the concert. So, so, so helping people understand this, um, this relationship between what my body is like 
and what the demands of this thing are that I want to do and how to sort of broker those things. You know, to me, OTs are standing in the space. We're looking at the activity, we're looking at the person and we're saying, you know, how we can shift this part over here, we can shift this part over here. So we're helping that person like navigate alternatives um, so that the sensory pattern they have doesn't interfere anymore. It's still there, they're still sensitive to sound or whatever, but, but it's not a deal breaker anymore because they understand the nature of it. Like they might have to get up during the concert and go out in the hall for a while you know, go get the drinks for everyone so that they have a break from the loudness. Um, but they're still having the experience on their own terms. They're not saying, I can't do that because I have, you know, I have low thresholds. They're just saying, here's how it's going to have to look for me to do it. And so as we provide intervention that way, we also build the parent, the person, the child, the teacher's competence. We build their ability to notice how that person's sensory patterns are affecting what the activity outcomes are. And to me, that's like the best kind of OT ever. Can you explain why? And I feel like this weaves into the coaching a little bit where we're helping the client solve their own meaningful problems rather than coming up with the solutions ourselves and feeling like we are the expert and we're on this pedestal it's, it's more of a participation. It's more of a partnership with them. Well, you know, I, I, um, I have, my degrees are in three different disciplines. So I've had this value my whole life of what, do, what have other people figured out or what are other people thinking about this? So um, there's a lot of coaching research in business, in um, executive work, in um, social work. Um, and then paired with that, there's a lot of education evidence um, about the need for people to be engaged, like the old idea that we would lecture doesn't really, um, it doesn't foster learning. It doesn't foster deep understanding and learning, but that engagement does. So if you take those two things together, what we know about human beings is that when they have to dig in and figure things out, um, number one, it'll be a better match for them because they'll only think of things that they're interested in doing. But secondly, the act of having to dig in, try things, see what works, see what doesn't work, um, keeps their brain deeply involved in what the solution's going to be. So then they're more likely to actually do it. You know, I certainly in my career, I've given families and teachers things, you know, and then I would go back and they'd be like, yeah, that was fine. You know, and you knew they didn't do it. Like, it was a perfect plan, but plans that no one does aren't actually plans. And so this idea of engaging the other person and trusting that they can think of something, you know, I know you can think of it. And, and um, as OTs being willing to let them try things that we are pretty confident is, aren't gonna work, you know? We, we want to, we always trying to protect people from errors, but errors are the places where we go, you know, it's because of this, I got to tweak it. You know, I had a mom that wanted her younger son to go to the, who had autism to go to the baseball games to watch the older brother play. Well, he was sensitive to sound and touch, like on the bleachers, like it is, a, <laughs> it's a haven for those two things. And so guess what he did? He ran away and it took us a while. You know, she tried headphones, 
Um, and then she realized the headphones were bothering him from a touch standpoint, but she kind of worked her way through five or six different strategies. And um, I, I totally love what she ended up doing. So one night she was just frustrated because her older son was mad because he never saw the game. She never saw what he did. And so um, out of desperation, she uh, got a babysitter for the younger boy just so that her older son could see that she was gonna really watch his game. And um, she, she tells me the next time we talked, she says, you know, Winnie, um, it was the first time the three of us had dinner together because we weren't all mad. My son was mad that I didn't watch his game. My other son was mad because he was overwhelmed. She said, I just realized that, you know, that baseball diamond is never gonna be easy for my younger son. It's just never gonna be an easy place. And he was so relaxed from being able to be in a quiet place um, on his own terms, that actually family time was what we did after we all went and did the things that were good for us and then we came back together. So, so she went through this process of continuing to return back to, he's sensitive to sound, you know, the, the headphones didn't work. Um, she moved on the bleachers and everybody moved up to say hi, you know, it didn't help. You know, she just, she just, but they were all great ideas and they were all ideas that reflected her understanding of what her son needed, you know, and that, that sort of grittiness of uh, like honing the idea and honing the idea and honing the idea is what made it. Uh, if I had just said to her, get a babysitter, do you see how, like, she wouldn't have, she would have thought, you don't get that. I want to have family time. Like she didn't, being present with her until she figured out what family time really was going to look like um, also deepened her commitment to finding the way. And um, to me, that's where like sensory processing knowledge and coaching are a really good pair because um, continuing to remind her like it's really noisy. So what can we do about the noise? Um, what do you have control over? What don't you have control over? Um, that, you know, those conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, helped her to sort of come to this new place. And then, you know, the babysitting wasn't a resentful thing. It was like, oh my God, I'm totally honoring what this little boy needs. I'm being a better mother by giving him the babysitter. Like she really understood it deep in her bones. She wasn't like pawning him off anymore. She was giving him what he needed. And, you know, it made her feel like a better parent for making that choice instead of like she's dumping him off. But that wouldn't have happened if I had just said, get a babysitter. That's never going to work at the baseball game. I so, love that example. I um, love that. I love that example. And I think I've, I've written down a few points that I want to touch on because this is what I got out of it, that it is about asking the right questions. We're not always there to give the answers it's about asking the right questions so they can come to the realization and to the strategies themselves and how powerful it is for the parent or for the client to be able to be their own change agent to be mm -hmm. able to be the driver in their own life because when another situation happens again they can start to problem solve for themselves. They don't need to come running to therapy to ask someone to solve their problem. They are active and solving their own meaningful problems. And this is what it's all about. It's about empowering people to live their life on their terms 
with their own problem solving skills. Right. In one of our studies that we did, uh, one of the moms and dads, uh, they, we would meet with them pretty regularly. And then, you know, sometimes the parents would say, can we just have a few weeks? You know, I, we, we understand the basic things. Can we just have a few weeks to try some things, you know? And this one mom and dad, they would say to each other, what would Lauren ask us next about the therapist? Because they understood that they're, you know, what we're giving them is this scaffolding of how to solve it, you know? And what a better way for a teacher or a parent to feel competent than to give them a strategy to not be overwhelmed or to judge the behavior, but to say, so what does that behavior tell me and what should I do next? Like that's, you know, if a parent's problem solving, like you said, is to say, call the therapist, like we, we haven't done the work that we've promised that we would do. Hmm. Absolutely not. I'd love to ask you what the current evidence is that supports the concept of applying sensory processing knowledge as part of our OT interventions. Well, um, there's a lot of controversy about that, especially here in America. Um, I am certainly in the, in the, of the mind that um, using this as a tool to um, help families or teachers or people solve it um, rather than trying to fix it. I think that um, over the years, one of the things I've learned as a, as a therapist is that when we keep acting like we're gonna fix something, we're sending a message that there's something wrong with their, themselves, their parents, their children. And that's a really, you know, I had a mom one time at a conference um, get really emotional because I was trying to teach about writing strength-based statements about children. And um, I put up a bad one and we were gonna, we were gonna work on it. And uh, she said, they wrote that about my daughter. They wrote almost the same sentences about my daughter. She said, they don't even know her. And her voice is in my head, you know? And so this idea that, um, that we would have the audacity to suggest that a person isn't exactly how they're supposed to be. Um, it's just, it's just unacceptable anymore. And, and so it doesn't mean we don't have things we want to work on or things that we want to do better. We all do, but, but that there should be no judgment about what a person presents with today. Um, and so that sort of drives my decision-making about interventions and, and the evidence about that uh, comes from, if you look in early childhood literature from Carl Dunst, and he worked a lot with um, families in early childhood programs. Um, it comes from a lot of the coaching literature, comes from the education literature. Um, uh, uh, there was a guy uh, that did a, um, a, a group of people that did a series of studies with teachers, and they, <laughs> they went to a workshop. I mean, the classic thing that professionals do, go to a workshop, learn a new thing, you know, like, oh, we're all excited. We went to a workshop and everything's better. So he followed, he did a, they did a series of things. Um, and the, in the first, the first condition, they went to the workshop, they went back, they checked back with these teachers six months later. And like 6% of the teachers had changed their practices. So then they just kept doing progressively different things. So they would do the workshop and then they would um, have a phone call or they would do the workshop and then they would 
they did they did all these different permutations of um, professional development and they it, it stayed like below 10% of the people changing their practices until the condition where they went because you know we do have to learn the new things we do have to learn them but then um, each uh, teacher that came was either in a little small cohort or had um, what we today would call a coach somebody that would come to their classroom um, ask what they wanted to work on um, and giving them feedback about their lesson plan about uh, the questions they asked their students about the homework um, when they did that as a follow-up to teaching a new thing it jumped to 86% of the teachers changing their practices so I know we're not exactly like teachers, but we're professionals that have a body of knowledge that we're trying to apply. Um, I think the parallels are pretty clear, at least to me. Um, it seems reasonable for us to hypothesize that for OTs, it would be the same. If we just learn something on a weekend, it's, we get all jazzed up, the teacher was really fun, really smart, blah, blah, blah. If we don't have a way to create accountability for ourselves, like a partner that's going to check in with us uh, based on a goal that we've set to change how we write our notes or how we have a conversation with a teacher or um, whether we're going to, how we're going to bring up sensory processing in a conversation with a family. Um, any goal that we set, if we don't have an accountability partner to um, make us know, oh my God, I have a call on Wednesday. I better, you know, get going on that. Um, and to have that practice on the exact therapy process that we're doing, not an abstract one, but ours, um, we can't expect that people are gonna be changing what they do. So if that's true for teachers, and I, I think it's probably true for therapists, um, we're all human beings, it's probably likely true for parents and for um, the, the therapist-teacher relationship or with our relationship with the other adults that we're serving. So this idea, it goes back to the idea of engagement. And so the literature on that is really strong. And um, that's what I, you know, rather than narrowing to just the literature on OT and, you know, this, because um, some of our coaching studies, we use sensory processing as our, as our, our uh, frame of reference. Um, I think we should start, we're, we're getting to be a mature discipline. We got to look bigger at the evidence and see how it applies to us. You know, when we started, we pulled on psychology, we pulled on business, we pulled on economics, we pulled on sociology. Uh, why did we stop doing that? Just because we have our own body of work. Um, we still have that responsibility to look at what all the evidence tells us about how to behave. Mm, I love that. Before we start to wrap things up, I'd love to know what your top five tips would be for OTs who are working with clients in this sensory processing space. Um, the very first thing is, you know, obviously we have to find out what a person's sensory patterns are. But then I want therapists to think about what's good about that sensory pattern. Instead of, you know, when I was trained, it was always like, find out what's wrong and fix it, you know, but to pause and say, what would be something really useful about that sensory pattern? You know, like the mom that I talked about, you know, I had a, a mom with a toddler that was um, very, very um, sensitive to sound and she had done all kinds of really good things. And 
um, like she put a white noise machine in his bedroom and she'd done lots of really cool things. And um, I, I could see she wasn't buying it, you know? So I said, let me tell you about the children I know that are, that have grown up that are like your son. And I started telling her, you know, um, they're, they're notice your moods. Um, many of them become artists because they see parts of the world that we miss and they show it in their art and it makes us all so happy, but they noticed it. We didn't, you know, and she started crying. Um, and she told, she started telling me, she said, I'm an artist. And some of the things that she'd done for her boy, she had done as a child herself. And so that, that idea that, that uh, there's a good thing about every sensory pattern, you know, like they know how to have solitude or they know how to, you know, their joy looks like this. Um, so to pause and be curious about what it is that's good about it, that we can tell the families or the teachers or whoever, what's good about that sensory pattern? Who are some adults we know that are successful, that are used, that have that sensory pattern so that it doesn't look aberrant anymore? Um, I think the second thing is to make sure as OTs that we stay focused on the person's life. I think sometimes we spend, we, and we do have to spend some time like understanding our, our theories and our, um, our approach and everything, but we get so stuck there that we forget there's a life over here we're supposed to be affecting. And so the, the, the next thing would be to really stay focused on the life ahead of you, in front of you, not on your procedures. It's really not OT if you're not thinking about the other person's life. Always circling back to that. How does it affect their life? And from a sensory processing standpoint, I try to find easy and hard places during their day so that we can find out what they're, you know, because most of the time people have some strategies. They just don't know that they're strategies. They're just like, the mom's just trying to get through the day, but her, her way of trying to get through the day is a really good strategy that we could harvest and use over here. So listening to what's good about their day and what, what's a, what does a good day look like or what would it look like if it was perfect, you know, taking time to find out those things so that you can say, did you notice in that story that you did this? And I think we could use that same idea over here for feeding. To like let them know that you are so competent, you thought of that. That is amazing that you figured that out. Let's use it again. That idea that, that their life has all the information we need. Um, and, and, to, and the other thing is for me is that OTs need to trust themselves. That instead of thinking we have to have protocols, we need to trust that no matter what a person says about their life, if they say they tie flies, if they say they play the piano, whatever it is, that we have the considerable knowledge and skills of OT to to um, see the therapeutic possibilities in that activity. That we don't have to worry, like I don't have to play the piano to know how to use piano playing in a therapeutic way for a particular individual. Um, and I think that OTs forget that. We get so worried, you know, that we're not gonna do it right, that we wanna cling to the five things that we already know how to do. And our ability to problem solve is what we go to school for all these years. <laughs> so, and it's way more fun, way more fun. So those would be the things that I would say.
to someone. Awesome. I I love it. And I love that what you said at the end there, because we can be working with the client in the real life context of their day-to-day life and weaving in our therapeutic knowledge and everything like that to support them to, to do the meaningful activities that they want to do on a daily basis. So it is getting back to the core of OT. It's about participation, engagement and quality of life and helping people do the things that they want to do. So spot on. I love it. Oh, I probably have a million and one other questions for you, Winnie, but I will head to the rapid fire questions. Okay. So we've got three. And the first one is in one sentence, how do you describe OT? OT is a, is um, a discipline that cares about what your life looks like and what makes it satisfying. And we have the tools to help you figure out how to make the things you want to do the best they can be. Love it. Number two, what's one healthy lifestyle habit listeners can implement today? Staying curious and trusting that um, their life is unfolding as it should. You know, um, everything that happened, the bad things, the hard things, they all got us to here. And um, the only the only bad outcome is if you don't um, gain insight from what goes on around you. So that curiosity about why did that happen? What does it mean? Do I want to do more of that or do I want to change it? You know, you get to choose all the range, but staying curious instead of judgmental um, changes the game a lot. I love that. Number three, if you could only offer one piece of advice to OTs, what would it be? Um, Keep your focus on the life. And I would go so far as to say that if you're not doing that, if you're procedurally focused or person factor focused, you're not doing OT. Like the only thing that matters in OT is that their life gets better. It does, if their balance gets better and they still can't get on the bus, we haven't done our job. We haven't done our work. So stay focused on the life that you're serving. Love that. Thank you so much, Winnie. I am so grateful for your work, for this conversation today. You are a true trailblazer in the world of OT and I'm deeply grateful that we can share this conversation with more OTs around the globe. And I trust that the seeds that were planted here today will grow. So thank you. I'm so grateful you had this um, with me because it was just so much fun. I don't get to think about these things all the time and you gave me a chance to do that. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Winnie. That's it, guys. I hope this episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope that it inspires you to take action. If you haven't already, come over and join our Facebook group family where we connect and collaborate. You can find us really easy just by searching the OT Lifestyle Movement in Facebook. If you did love this episode, I'd be super grateful if you shared it. You can take a screenshot right now and share it on Instagram or on Facebook so we can connect with more amazing, like-minded, open-minded OTs. The more we share the OT lifestyle movement, the more we can create a ripple effect. And if you do love the podcast, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review so we can be found more easily. 
That's it. Go out, create the epic change that you seek in the world because the world is ready for you. Carpe diem, guys. <laughs>